Welcome to Austin New Church Podcast. My name is Stephanie Swan, and I'm the children's pastor here. If this is your first time here, we're so happy that you've decided to join us. We are a progressive faith community dedicated to the pursuit of inclusion and social justice. Whether you're a beloved out-of-towner or just catching up, please enjoy this week's message. Good morning, one and all. Sue says morning. Good morning, good morning. It's good to see you guys in here on a lovely day. What a week we've had weather-wise, right? With the exception of the last day, you can have that one back. That was, that was a little bit warm. So good morning, one and all. Congratulations, we made it through tax day. I mean, the October 15th tax extension day for those of us who procrastinate. For the rest of y'all high achievers, boo on y'all. You're going to see in a moment why I think that's so funny. It's just so funny. I have come to trust the lectionary. Many of you guys know this. We talk about this often. I've come to trust the lectionary and its wisdom to, to assign text to a day. When you see in a second the little sub-chapter heading of the text for today, you're going to see why that's funny. The lectionary still reads my mail, and there's a pun in there somewhere if you can find it. So I woke up last Monday morning, as I do on every Monday morning, uh, except last Monday morning, my single goal was to get to my tax guy missing paperwork. And once that was done, I open my phone and I look at the app and I figure out what's the text for next Sunday and I start preparing for the sermon that I got to write. And I opened up my phone and it said this, the question about paying taxes <laughs> from Matthew 22. I was asking that question last Monday, let me just tell you. How timely, how timely is that? To be honest, I considered that question deeply. In fact, I thought about another Boston tea party, but I don't particularly like Boston and coffee's better than tea. So I swiped and anted up, you'll be relieved. There will be no knock in the middle of the night at my door. We're fine. I paid my taxes. <laughs> Anyhow, Austin, we made it through ACL. We made it through tax extension deadline. We made it through 100 days of 100 degrees. We're almost through Formula One at COTA today. And then all we have to face is Halloween and then something even scarier before the year, of, before the year is out. And then we call that the trail of lights. That's literally the worst idea ever conceived. Y'all, forgive me, Austin. Forgive me, Austin, but take, take the biggest ragtag bunch of hand-painted signs that don't look anything like Mickey Mouse and put some crappy lights on it and then line up for four hours so you can look at it. Y'all, we have Instagram in our pockets. I will never anyway. Trail of Lights is like the bats on Congress Bridge. You have to see it one time, and when you've seen it, you're like, just saying. Trey's the one who's been in Europe, and I'm in here picking all the fights in Austin. What, what can I say? Ask him how much cheese he brought home. Anyway, we're almost to the end of the year now. I feel like we're cooking with gas. It's almost 2024. What do you think about that? Yeah, farewell, 2023. It's been a good year. Anyway, last week it only took me nine full pages of notes to get to the text. Don was counting. And this week, we're going to do it a little different. I'm going to jump right in. Picking up where we left off from Matthew 22 last week, let's grab that on the screen. Let's read through it once, and then we'll go back and find what meaning we can make verse by verse. It reads this way, the question about paying taxes. I'll be darned. Verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him, referring to Jesus, in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
But Jesus, aware of their malice, says, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, whose head is this and whose title? Verse 22, and they answered, Caesar's. Then he said to them, give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and they went away. And I didn't intend to do this, but I actually have a coin in my pocket. It's not really a coin. It's a voucher for a free beer at Pine House Pizza. These are the kinds of... (laughs) Give to Jason what belongs to Jason. The salesperson at radio that hawks Pine House beer is a pal of mine, and when she comes in, she gives me little stacks of these, and so bite me. I live in Austin, what can I say? Give unto Caesar, therefore, the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So this is Matthew's memory of another, uh, yet another confrontation between Jesus and the religious gatekeepers of his day. And I said this last week, and it bears repeating. To understand Matthew's gospel, to follow his angle, you have to know that he had an ax to grind with the public institutional religious leaders of his day. He was just gonna, these were the stories he was gonna tell, and he was gonna tell them in a way that didn't shine very kindly on the struggles that they were in. So Matthew will often toggle between placing Jesus in direct confrontation with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they were both key groups, subgroups among the Jews of the time of Jesus. They had long-standing disputes around critical points of theology and critical points of doctrine, and it doesn't matter all that much for our purposes today. But just as a way to distinguish them, you might keep this in mind. The Sadducees were the upper echelon of the, Judean, of the, of the Jewish religious society, right? Tracking their name back all the way to Zadok, which would be a great name for a fish. I've given you guys so many names for fish now, I can't even buy a whole school and name them cool names. But they traced their name back all the way to the very beginning. When it, during the, t- the time of Solomon, the son of King David, this, the, the, the sons of Zadok, the family of Zadok, were in charge of the temple. Well, during the time of Jesus, they were in charge of the temple as well, the Sadducees. What's interesting is that they were not big fans of the oral Torah, the oral tradition, meaning the rabbinical tradition. So think not just about the text itself, but about the things talked about in the text. They were not big fans. They were strict, and sadly, because of the de- deconstruction or the destruction of the temple in AD 70 of the common era, not a single line of their written or recorded tradition survives antiquity. We don't know that much about the Sadducees. Well, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they were much more holistic. They valued the oral traditions of Judaism in addition to the temple and the Torah, and they were the most significant subset of Jewish religious society, at least in the, in the, in the writings that we have preserved from the friends of Jesus, they, they were probably featured more importantly than anyone else, especially in the book of Matthew. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were often at each other's throats, and you can see it in the text. The details of their many disagreements, again, don't matter as much as simply knowing that their differences were religious in scope. But today, Matthew broadens out that conversation, doesn't he? Today he mentions a group called the Herodians, and here's why that matters. The Herodians, although mentioned nowhere else that we can find in antiquity, they were presumably faithful to King Herod, the Jewish puppet king set up and maintained by Rome to control the Jews. So my question would be this. Why would the Pharisees and the Herodians be colluding to entrap Jesus in something that he said, to use Matthew's words? Why would they be working together? These are odd bedfellows indeed. It would take a very unique reason to make these two parties work together on anything that I can think of. Well, say more, preacher. Okay, I will. (laughs) I'll go first, as they say. The religious establishment hated Herod. Now, he was purely a political leader. 
left alone, the original vision that they had always had was that their society would be led by faithful people following their, their, the way they did their faith at the temple. The temple would hold the center of their life. They didn't need a political leader. You might remember that from history. You see, Herod was an embarrassment that they had no choice but to tolerate because Israel was occupied by Rome at the time, and Rome's success required imperial control of all of her provinces, of which Palestine was a significant one. Herod was installed to put a lid on any kind of potential uprising, especially during certain weeks of the year when that was highly likely. Well, the Pharisees couldn't have crossed Herod publicly, not on record, but they didn't love him privately. The faithful masses hated King Herod. Herod was an insult that spoke to the ongoing trauma of occupation and empire, and to be clear, this had everything to do with paying taxes. Herod was in charge of collecting the taxes, paid yearly, then he would skim some for himself, and he would send those off to Rome to support her imperial ambitions. If you remember Roman history, they just went too broad, too quick, and they couldn't sustain it. So the little provinces paid the price. At any rate, today's exchange between Jesus and the public leaders colluding to entrap him, it spans more than just religious affiliations. It also includes today the world of politics and religion, which of course means there really was no safe way for Jesus to answer that question out loud. This was a perfect trap. This was well thought out. The average traveling mystic would have stepped right in it, as they say, but Jesus wasn't, was he? Average. He was way above average, I would say. And like other clever public figures often do, Jesus evades the line of questioning altogether. Unwilling to insult either Rome or Jerusalem, Jesus opens a completely different conversation altogether. Answering a question with a question was his most annoying habit. It would have made me absolutely drink liquor. I'm just telling you. He tosses his own inquiry back at those who were sent to inquire about his loyalties. His question, though, is beginning to get really clear. It was essentially this. Who belongs to whom or whose is what? So let's go back through these verses and see what we might see. Verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what, they, in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, super brave, real, real, real good. Send your apprentice if you got some real work to be done. Anyway, so they sent the disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are sincere and you teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one for you do not regard people with partiality. I'm struck by how well they already knew and, or know the work of Jesus. They come to him with malice, according to Jesus, but they speak the truth all the same, and they end up with a brilliant summary of his ministry, something like this. You are sincere, teaching God's truthful way, and you do it while not showing deference to any particular person. You do it while showing no partiality. Well, I would say that's high praise indeed. I'm considering currently epitaphs. That one's on the top list right there. It's top three. But they came to entrap him, not flatter him, and so the conversation moves on. Verse 17 says this, tell us then, and this is of course the disciples of Herod and the Pharisees asking, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, says, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? So let's take our time with this now. How did Jesus know what their motives were? How was he aware of their attempt to entrap him? Now for the record, I don't think Jesus knew the content of their hearts or the polarity of their motives because he was clairvoyant or because he had superhuman spidey senses as the son of God. That alone doesn't make him unique. Remember, according to him, on many occasions, he insisted that we're all the sons and daughters of God. 
I'm not convinced Jesus had enhanced software that was, for whatever reason, unavailable to the rest of us. I don't believe he walked around with some super secret 5G Wi-Fi password that the others don't have access to. Friends, he was sharp, but it was because he paid attention. He was unique because of how deeply he attuned himself to himself and to the beauty and to the suffering of the world around him. And we can do that too. I think he listened to his gut just to use a word that makes sense to us. And I believe that you and me, like Jesus, can know if we're tuned in what we're walking into. If we listen to our bodies, we can feel it. Now pause and think for a second. How many times has your gut shouted to you to avoid something or other only to find out later that listening to yourself in that way saved you from some grief or loss or gave you a valuable insight of some kind? Think about that. How many times has that happened to you? One of the mistakes the early church may have made regarding their gathered collections about Jesus was possibly to attribute to him almost absurd superhuman faculties, faculties and capacities that always seem to be just out of reach of the regular sons and daughters of God, you and me. You see, to overstate the nature of Christ's divinity might demure his humanity and put his life out of reach for us. And as long as only Jesus can do or know a thing, we're still totally dependent as a subspecies, relying on someone else to do for us what we'll never be able to do or accomplish for ourselves. And friends, I'm just not 100% convinced anymore that that's how things actually work. Now breathe deep with me. Somebody did, there you go. Usually when, we, when I tell you guys to breathe, you just do like, you just look at me and blink. I know we're dancing close to the edge here, but how we think about this matters. You see, the church has argued more about this issue, the humanity-divinity continuum of Jesus. The church has argued more about this than any other aspect of theology and doctrine since the very beginning. In fact, the church fathers once locked themselves away nice and tight in somebody's cool little stone house in Turkey, and they did not emerge until they put some words to this peculiar idea, the 100%ness of Jesus' humanity added to the 100%ness of his divinity, of course, somehow equaling a mere 100% of a whole which of course broke more than a few honest brains that tried to wrap themselves around that new math, this new piece of essential dogma. And to be honest, it institutionalized in the church world fuzzy calculations for the rest of history. Don't trust the church with math. That's how you end up with an earth that's 6,000 years old, Molly. That's an old joke. It's appropriate not to laugh at an old joke. So they lock themselves away and they try to come up with a way to say, how can something be 200% of something and yet only 100% of something? And I think they confused more people than they clarified the situation. And I'm not arguing against the divinity of Jesus. Don't hear me wrongly. I'm arguing for what he argued for, the divine nature of all things, of all people. If you think I've lost my mind, don't forget how this little story ends. Give to God everything that belongs to God. But think this through with me for a second, for just a few more moments. One of the mistakes that we might make by assuming that we can't do what Jesus did might be to fail to trust and explore our deeper human capacities, like our crystal clear intuition and the divine ability to see and meet the needs of hurting people. Friends, if we can't do what Jesus did, then we can't heal ourselves or one another or the world around us. In my mind, slightly more significant then the idea that we rely on Jesus is the idea that we're becoming like Jesus. Do you feel that? I sure hope we can do what he did. Remember when Jesus said that we, his followers, would do greater things than even he did when he was here among us? 
His best friend wrote that down. We have that in John chapter 14. Anyway, I think the point is Jesus paid attention, and we can too. He knew this was a trap. This was something that resonated with an inner knowing. It's something that we all have access to, I think is my point that I'm trying to make. Also interesting about this is Matthew's use of the word hypocrite. We don't love that word, do we? If you ever hear that hurled at your face, especially by your kids, it's not going to be a good day for you. I've had more of those days than I want to admit. See, in Greek, this little word literally conveys the idea of a stage actor playing a role. So think of a person who acts a certain way while being watched by people and then goes home to a different life. That's the word that Matthew uses. Jesus intuits that his inquirers, those that came with the pressing question, he intuits that they're living in a gap between two identities. We usually hear these two words as a harsh admonishment towards them as people. But friends, this feels almost like mercy to me, kindness even. You see, noticing and naming hypocrisy could be as much about compassion as anything else. Have you ever been stuck between two identities? Literally living behind a mask? Friends, nobody thrives there. Everyone knows that intuitively. And often the person to point that out, to point out that suffering, that, of, that split identity, that, often person, that, that person often becomes significant in your healing journey. You see, that's, that awareness has to happen first. You might even call such a person a prophet if that language works for you. Jesus is setting people free all over the place, even his accusers, friends. Even the ones who come to bear him malice in their heart, they too were suffering, you see. We must understand, I don't know if he read their heart or their hurt or just the ways that they were hiding, but all of it matters. My point is your heart can read when people hurt and when people are hiding too. Most of you already do. You just don't know that's a spiritual intuition. And if you don't, possibly you would if you tuned out all the other false narratives about what people that you dislike are actually worth. If you tuned down that volume, I think we would see what lies in front of us just like Jesus did. You see, you and I, like Jesus, can sense the posture of human hearts when we deeply attune to ourselves. Friends, my only point here is that we miss out on something powerful about ourselves when we assume that Jesus did things that we could never do. You most certainly can live this way. You most certainly can. In fact, you were born to, and so was I. So pressing on now, after putting his finger on their pretense and their suffering that Matthew calls hypocrisy, something that, by the way, we're all guilty of, Jesus responds with a question of his own for these two men, or for these men. Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And then he said to them, whose head and whose title? Something interesting here. We know the head on the denarius was Caesar's, but what about the title? Well, it read precisely this. Tiberius Caesar Divi Augusti Filius Augustus. And I don't speak Latin. It's just really easy to pronounce. The translation of that would be Tiberius Caesar, the son of the divine Augustus, the Augustus the Ohio State, right? You know, when you use that word, the, the University of Miami, whatever. Well, part of the reason Jesus got in trouble for being called the Son of God was because that title was already taken, friends, and it was taken by Caesar. It got him in a world of hurt with Rome, and just imagine how much worse that he would make things by insisting, friends, that we too, that all of us indeed are daughters and sons of God. You see, godlike status was attributed to the ruler of Rome. And of course, that was all about fear and control, but it was a title that everyone in the ancient world would have known and understood. 
in part because it was printed right on the coins that Jews had to carry around in their pockets to pay their yearly taxes, which must have been deeply, deeply offensive to Jewish people. Don't forget, they were prohibited from creating craven images of any kind of God, and Caesar was no God to them. The very thought must have been repulsive. But Jesus was leading them now to something really, really important. Verse 21. They answered about whose face and inscription. They say, Caesar's. And then he said to them, give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. And they left him and they went away. And friends, finally, this is the conversation that Jesus actually wants to have. It's funny because no matter where the conversation actually begins, Jesus takes them right where he wants them to go to the deeper questions about what and whom belong to God. I love this so much. This is what Jesus does so well. This is a really good summary of the whole message of Jesus. He came to remind us that all things bear the signature of their maker, God. All good works get signed by the designer. Friends, it's just how art works. Think of how broad and all-encompassing this invitation is. Give to God what belongs to God. And how will we know, pray tell, that something belongs to God? Well, the same way you know a coin belongs to Caesar. Just look at the face and read the inscription. Oh, friends, we're getting somewhere now. This is the heart of the matter, actually. We sometimes don't see the face of God in others. Oh, sure, we see the face of God in the members of our tribe and in our family, but we don't see the face of God in our enemies, do we? Which, of course, is a category that dissolves entirely in the world of love and the world of Jesus. Friends, if Jews truly saw the face of God in Palestinians, there would be no need to violently occupy Gaza. If Palestinians saw the face of God in in the Jews, Hamas would be rejected as the criminal organization that it is. An enemy can only be an enemy when you deny that they bear the face of God. This is Jesus' essential claim, friends. Can I summarize it for you? We all belong to God. Every last one of us. This is why Jesus was then and remains today so disruptive and so misunderstood. He doesn't show enough partiality to to the right people. You know, surely it's okay to show partiality to the right people, preacher. I mean, Jesus is partial to us, his followers, isn't he? I mean, we're the right people, aren't we? Aren't we? I guess only in the sense that all people are the right people we are. But preacher, you might be saying to yourself, that can't be right. How can all people be God's people? I know, friend, it's a lot to process, isn't it? This odd pairing of the disciples of Judaism, the Pharisees, and the lackeys of Rome, the Herodians, do their collective best to ensnare Jesus and make him say something incriminating in public, but Jesus, without missing a beat, speaks to the heart of the masses, addresses the question they're actually asking while dismantling the trap, and he does it by saying what we all know anyway, which is that it all belongs to God. These guys do what they can to eliminate Jesus. He's a threat because he was a threat to the control that they had over the imagination of the crowd. If everything belonged to God, then their market would disappear. Religious institutions exist to clarify what's good and who's bad after all, what's in and what's out. The establishment had to try to eliminate the message of Jesus, so they grab a hand grenade, they pull the pin, they toss the pin at Jesus, blowing up their own logic, hanging onto the hand grenade right in front of the crowd that they summoned to embarrass Jesus with. 
Oh, friends, what a story. What a beautiful glimpse into how things actually work. You know, it's interesting what things linger in the mind after reading something like this as many times as I have. I've grown up listening to this story. And it's the idea of the faces that stay with me. Faces. Now, I can no longer remember names, forget about it. it, You tell me your name, I'm going to remember your face. That's all I can do. I can't remember who played bass on what record and who produced it and what studio. I used to know all that. But faces, I don't forget faces. And I wonder if you notice the faces in our story today. I think of the faces behind the masks or behind the hypocrisy, to use Matthew's words. I think of the faces of the ones who offered flattery, covering the malice of their own hearts, attempting to set a trap for Jesus, only to have their need for masks be eliminated altogether. I think of the faces of the accusers. But I also think of the face of Caesar on the coin with which taxes were paid, a mere mortal's attempt to force followership and subservience. That's its own kind of suffering, not unlike the kind that the hypocrites were suffering behind their masks. I think of the face of Caesar. But most importantly, I think of the face of the image of God that appears somewhere on all living things without exception. Oh, friends, hear me. It's hard to mistreat or misrepresent or otherwise misuse and destroy anyone or anything that bears the face of God. You realize what Jesus is saying here, I presume. If ever there was an idea that could launch a cosmic revolution, this is it. Control nothing, injure nothing, destroy nothing, hate nothing, because it all bears the face of God. And to mar the face of God, friend, is to mar your own face. There is only one face, friend, God's face. The greatest invitation ever bestowed upon a living being is this, to simply see the face of God in all things, everywhere it can be found, which is everywhere. So in conclusion, wouldn't it be nice if we treated all people as if they actually belonged to God? Wouldn't it be nice if we treated all things as if they bore the face of God, every tree ring, every tiny lichen, every imploding red giant, every teary human eye, every ice crystal? Wouldn't it be nice, friends, if we treated ourselves, all parts of us, including the less than lovely parts, as if our face, our glorious, lined, time-signed, divine face was actually the very face of God? Oh, dear one, would you at least consider that idea today? Just promise me you'll try and see what happens next in your life. Give to God what bears God's face and inscription, which is only everything. Thank you for listening to the Austin New Church Podcast. To stay connected, follow us on our Facebook and Instagram pages and head over to austinnewchurch.com where you can get added to our mailing list. Our services are also live streamed on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. if you'd like to receive the full experience. We're so grateful for who you are and who you're becoming. Grace and peace be with you.